Samuel is also known as the man who is, serves as the transition between the days of the prophets and the monarchy. God used him to establish the kingdom or the monarchy for his people, the people of Israel. His mother is the one that I alluded to early in the, in the introduction. Uh, her name, of course, is Hannah. And Hannah is the first woman's First woman in the entire word of God whose prayer is talked about or whose prayer is recorded. And we find a portion of those prayers that she prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now I'm going to read to you a portion of this, of this wonderful chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 1, to introduce our thoughts today. We're only going to be able to cover about half of the chapter and I apologize for that I wanted to cover a chapter at a time but there was simply just too much information to go through first Samuel chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 now there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim in the mountains of Ephraim and his name was Elkanah the son of Jehoram the son of Elihu the son of Tohu the son of Zuth an Ephraimite and he had two wives the name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other was Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up to, from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Silo. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year that she went up, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. In the King James, it's a little difficult to keep track of the pronouns that are used there. Penaniah is the one that provoked Hannah, Hannah is the one that wept and did not eat. Verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, that I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicated drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complete complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you petition which you have asked of him. 
And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And so we're introduced to the beginning of the story of the prophet and the priest and judge Samuel, one of the greatest men in the Word of God, in the, in the Bible records. The Old Testament forms a very uh, rich heritage for the contemporary child of God. To say that the Christian, the modern Christian, does not need the Old Testament is a statement of ignorance and perhaps foolishness. Many of the problems of the Old Testament, as well as many of the pro promises of the Old Testament, are applicable in our day because men are still evil and men still reject God. The characters of the Old Testament, while appearing to us to be far away in time and in space, are actually men of like passions, just like we are. James chapter 5 and verse 17 refers to one of these characters, one of these heroes of faith, if you will, saying, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. This New Testament verdict on one of the great heroes of faith tell us, tells us that Elijah was not so much different than what we are. He was subject to fits of temper. He was subject to fits of depression, to highs and lows of life. And as we study through this book of 1 Samuel, we will find that though their faith, these people's faith, may have been exemplary, they suffered the same emotions that we do. And thus, as Hebrews 11 indicates, they serve as heroes of faith, not because they were perfect, not because they didn't have good days and bad days, but because they give us an example of what to do, how to live, and what to expect in our everyday life, even as New Testament Christians. Further, these people serve to remind us of the great faithfulness of God. These people often failed, and sometimes they failed big. But God was always faithful. God is a God who cannot lie. As such, he doesn't change. James makes reference to him saying there's no variableness or shadow of turning in him. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, we read, God is a, not a man that he should lie. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, 18, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which was, it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. In James chapter 1, verse 17, the verse I referenced just a second ago, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. This means... That God does not change. He cannot lie. His character is incorruptible. This is great comfort to us. Understand that Jesus has the same characteristics as God the Father does. Because he is God. And we take great comfort from verses like Hebrews 13 verse 8. Where we read Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. We find in our 
reading the very beginning, the scripture opens this story saying there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, and yes, I've practiced that for a long time, uh, of the Mount of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Eli, Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penaniah. And Penaniah had no children, but Hannah had no children. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. Now there's lots of speculation. If you read uh, character studies of the Bible, there's a lot of speculation about what kind of man this certain man of Ramathiam Zophim was, this Elkanah. It always makes me feel favorable to the man when the word of God says there was a certain man. It's, it's almost like that's a positive shadow or positive foreshadowing of what we're going to learn about this individual. The word Elkanah is interesting. His name, you know, our names have meaning. Um, sometimes we live up to those meanings and sometimes we do not. But Elkanah's name means acquired by God. And it's interesting to me that the book which tells the story of the establishment of the monarchy begins with the story of a very unhappy woman. The text says there was a certain man, but the story of the first couple of chapters is really about his wife, Hannah. The listing here of his lengthy genealogy is probably due to the importance of his son, Samuel. We learn from this that even today, parents uh, sometimes gain stature because of the accomplishments of their children. Now this city, Ramathium Zophim, the, is a reference to two hills or two towers of Zuf. It depends on which uh, archaeologist you're reading. Zuf, of course, was the ancestor of Elkanah, who was a direct descendant of Kohath, who was a son or grandson of Aaron. This places Elkanah in the tribe of, Le of the Levites and puts Samuel in line for the office of the high priest. Of Mount Ephraim means simply that they lived in the vicinity of Mount Ephraim. I'm breaking it down and kind of giving us an idea of the locations that, that we're talking about here. Elkanah was a descendant of Zuth. And his family line shows that he was a Levite. I'm going to forego reading the more lengthy and detailed genealogy in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 16 through 30. But if you're interested and want to learn, we will study these things in time. Um, the genealogies play a very important part in the story of the Bible, in the overall story, the scheme of redemption. He is called, Elkanah is called an Ephraimite here, not because his family lived in a Levitical city in the boundaries of Ephraim, but because he was of the tribe. I got that backwards in my notes. Not because he lived in the city or boundaries of Ephraim, but because he was of the tribe of Levi. Verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. 
The other Penaniah, Penaniah had children, Hannah had none. The mention that Elkanah had two wives should not surprise us too much. Um, it relates to the overall story of Hannah, the beginning of the story of Samuel. Having two wives suggests that polygamy was still permitted and practiced to some extent among the Israelites. And we find this going back to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We find this in some of their other ancestors along that same time frame. And in their descendants, David and Solomon had a long list of wives. This served a couple of purposes. Chiefly, polygamy gave greater assurance that a man would have a son to keep his name alive. Often when the first wife did not produce a male offspring, the, a second wife would be taken, sometimes at the choosing of the first wife. And this may have been the case in the story. The problems of this practice are illustrated in the rivalrous relationship between Hannah and Penaniah, the unhappiness that resulted. Our society correctly, at least at one point, does not sanction polygamy. Many of the same kinds of problems that we see in polygamous relationships in Scripture exist in polygamous relationships even today, whether it's of Islam or uh, Mormonism or other religion or anti-religion religious people. This man went up every year out of his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. It's most likely that Elkanah and his company, his wives and his children, went to the Passover. Probably this is the feast, the time that is being referenced here, to worship and to sacrifice. And this sounds very commendable to us. We find in this verse a unique title for the Lord called the Lord of Hosts. This phrase is actually found more than 260 times in the Old Testament, and this is the first usage. Probably given in reference to draw a line of demarcation between Jehovah God and the gods of the peoples who were around them. The peoples who were around them were known to worship the hosts of heaven, the sun, the moon, the stars, and so forth as that. But God, Jehovah God, is the Lord of hosts. With the purpose, the purpose behind this title undoubtedly is to assert his universal supremacy over creation, over the universe. I think it's a proper name even for us to use today in our speech, in our writing about God. Now, I said a minute ago that this sounds very commendable to us, this concept that Elkanah and his family went to Shiloh to worship God every year at this time. There's a little problem with this because the law of Moses under which they lived at that time required attendance to three specific festivals. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 23, the law of Moses says, Three times in the year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. Again, in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, Three times in the year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. In the feast of unleavened bread, in the feast of weeks, in the feast of tabernacles, and they shall, shall not appear before the Lord empty or empty-handed. We learn 
and from other scriptures, from a complete understanding of scripture, that the ark of God was in the tabernacle in Shiloh at that time. Verse 4. This was the time when Elkanah offered. He gave to Penaniah his wife and to all her sons and daughters portions. These sacrifices were probably peace offerings. The blood of those peace offerings would be poured out at the foot of the altar. The fat was then burnt on the fire, and the breast and the right shoulder were the portion for the priest to eat, and the rest belonged to the man and his family who made the offering. That man and his family would then feast on that offering, on that portion, each person receiving their portion. It appears that Elkanah followed the scripture, followed the law of Moses to a T. However, Hannah received her full portion without having to divide it among her children. It may be that Elkanah actually gave her more than what he did Penaniah. That's an area that's up for debate depending on who you read and who you study. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 11, this is what the scripture says about this. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son and thy daughter, and thy manservant, thy maidservant, and the Levite that is within thy gates, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow that are among you, in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. By the time you start adding up and tallying up all of those people, there's quite a few folks that this peace offering is supposed to feed. Very interesting to understand what all is going on in the sacrifices that's being portrayed to us here in the scriptures. Verse 5. But unto Hannah he gave a double or a worthy portion, depending on your translation. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. This is another indication that Penaniah, the second wife, may have been taken as wife to serve as, to, to do a service to the family. Now the concept of a worthy portion as we read in most of our versions today, is unique, and it deserves a special mention. Naturally, Hannah would have a portion of the sacrifice. We see this again in 1 Samuel 9, verse 23. But because of Elkanah's great love to her, he gave her a double portion, enough for two people. Genesis 43, verse 34 is referenced here. This phrase has been often disputed, but most likely it means that Hannah received two portions, whereas Penaniah received one that she then had to divide between her family. This was an Oriental or ancient East, Near Eastern way of expressing great favor. Now, no doubt this lady, Hannah, is most well known for being the mother of the great kingmaker, prophet, in the history of the world. Yes, she appears to us, first of all, as a woman of great sorrow. It's interesting that the book which tells the story of the mon beginning of the monarchy begins with the story of a very unhappy woman. The story is about Hannah, Elkanah's wife. We know that the double portion, the worthy portion that was given to Hannah, served her well. She's loved and respected by her husband. She's hated by her rival, Penaniah. Penaniah was a woman of a bitter spirit, overcome with jealousy, unable to prevent herself from speaking words of torment to Hannah. I want you to note that not once in this story is Hannah ever said to have gotten revenge 
or to long for revenge or to gain revenge or to manifest any type of ugly spirit to her rival. Every time that she's mentioned, she's mentioned as a woman of sorrow until she has her son Samuel. You see, she had a house, but she didn't have a home. And as a Jewish lady, her chief desire was to give to her husband children for his posterity. But she was barren. And here I think Hannah begins to shine. The, the, the dry part of the story is, is over. Hannah serves as a wonderful example of what we should do when our lives are difficult. We should pray. Remembering that God knows us and knows us better than even we know ourselves. When things are difficult, we should pray. Words hurt, don't they? I remember the foolish rhyme of childhood. Perhaps we've all been guilty of saying it or something akin to it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I've learned as an adult, as I'm sure we all have, that Words may not cause physical damage, as in leaving a bruise or breaking our bones. But oftentimes they're deeper. The damage is much deeper and longer lasting than a broken bone. Away with the idea here that God's people do not suffer. We find nothing mentioned here that Hannah was an immoral or ungodly woman in any way. This is a pious woman who is suffering and suffering greatly. She's suffering because of things that have been said to her. Hannah's suffering drove her to God. No doubt there was a part of a choice on her part in some of the story. Verse 9 tells us, and indicates this to me at least, it says that after they've eaten, Hannah rose up. This isn't just a change in location or a change in position. This is an indication of a moment of decisive action. Hannah is in fellowship with barrenness here. Not just barrenness of the womb, but of the body as well. She had nothing. She was a broken and contrite heart. And this is just what God can use. God's tendency is to make our inability his starting point. Our hope, helplessness and our hopelessness is just, well, they're just not a barrier to him. What we see before us is a weeping woman in Shiloh. But we really need to look deeper. And we begin to see when we do one of God's great principles of how he operates in our lives. When God's people are without resources, hope, human gimmicks, it's then that he stretches forth his hand from heaven and begins his work. Alcana's feeble and maybe tactless attempt at comfort, I guess is sweet in a way, his intention is no doubt noble, but is potentially even more damaging. He's almost insensitive to his wife's hurt. It seems that he doesn't really understand. I want you to get this. He was the person closest to her, nearest and dearest to her, and he didn't understand what was going on. I think we've all been where Hannah is right now. The enemy pressing hard. The pain is high. Our friends attempt at comfort fall far, far short. 
because they really don't know what's going on. It's there, it's then that we need to pull the Hannah. We need to get up. We need to rise up and pray. Hannah's prayer, verse 11 through 13, is fascinating. First, as I've already indicated, I believe we can call her the first lady of prayer. Women are not seen praying in scripture before Hannah. She's the first to have her prayers noted and recorded. She has nowhere else to turn for help or for comfort. So she assumes that the God of the universe, get this, the Lord of hosts, cares for some obscure woman in the hill country of, of Ephraim. Secondly, she assumes that this God, the Lord of hosts, that is the cosmic ruler, the sovereign of every and all power that has, has seen the affliction of an individual servant. What great liberty that brings to her when she prays to God. Here she is in extreme anguish of soul. But she's speaking her heart before the mighty magistrate of the universe. No other God in any religion in the history of mankind allows such actions by their servants. But our God, the Lord of hosts, not only allows it, but welcomes it and encourages it. Verse 13 through 16. Hannah's prayer incurred the wrath of the out-of-touch man of God. I shake my head at Eli. It's in a place of high power, high authority, a great responsibility, and yet he had no clue what was going on. He supposed that she was intoxicated. F.B. Meyer, in his commentary on the man Samuel, Samuel comments about Hannah's prayer says it was first a heart prayer. There's no vain repetitions here. Deep anguish is what's represented. Number two, it's based in God's name. That is, with his authority and in alignment with his will. Number three, it was definite. Very specific. Didn't have general platitudes that just pretty to hear. Very specific. It was without reverse. In other words, she held nothing back. She gave it everything. It was persevering. Evidently, the time that's recorded for us is not the first time that she has found at Shiloh weeping over her barrenness and brokenness. We see number six, that it was received. That's what God wants to hear from his people. And it ended in rejoicing because God always answers. It ended in rejoicing because God always answers. And we can rejoice when he hears us. I remember a few days ago, April Austin and I were reading in our daily reading. And even though I've read the verses, I don't know how many times, many, many times, I heard for the first time God's response to Abraham. Right after Abraham's, na Abraham's name had been changed to Abraham, God announces to Abraham that he's going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham prays this mighty intercessory prayer where he, it appears that he's bargaining with God. And at the end, he asks God just to spare his brother Lot or his nephew Lot. 
Listen to what God says. He says, I have heard you. Later, when God is in the process of renewing his covenant with Abraham, Abraham asked God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God reiterates that Sarah, though old and well beyond childbearing years, will bear a son. And then God says it again. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Ever felt like nobody listens? God listens. I say this again and again through the first chapter of Samuel. Hannah prays. Her husband, though he loves her really dearly, really doesn't understand her. He really doesn't hear her. That's part of the human condition, I think. The man of God, Eli, though he's concerned as much as he can be about each one of the people who come to Shiloh to worship, doesn't hear her. But God hears her. We'll pick up with Samuel's birth and dedication next week. I don't know if we'll just finish the chapter or finish the chapter and go into chapter 2. We'll see how that develops. But I want to leave you with this. Here in this chapter, we meet God, the Lord of hosts, the cosmic ruler of the universe. And we meet God who hears. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, is the king of all of heaven and all of earth. In contrast with those who worship the host of heaven, the sun, moon, and stars. And we meet El Shema. El Shema is not an official name of God, but it refers to the fact that God hears. He listens. God told Hagar to name her son soon to be, that was soon to be born Ishmael. Ishmael is a combination of El and Shema. God hears or God listens. And this no doubt would be a reminder to Hagar all of the days of her life of what God she served. He listens. Psalm 17, verse 6. I have called on you, for you will hear me. O God, incline your ear to me and hear my speech. That's a closed lesson tonight. I ask you again, how's your prayer life?